part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to, to Mark chapter 5 this morning, Mark chapter 5. You might, as you turn there, go, okay, weren't we in Mark chapter 5 a couple weeks ago? Actually, we started off this series in Mark chapter 5. Remember the demoniac, the guy who was in the graveyard, naked, walking around, doing all kinds of different things that was just strange? Well, this is a story that happens right after that. And we are pretty sure that Mark did write his gospel chronologically. That means that this probably this account happened very shortly after this other account. And so I want you to keep that in mind because it gives us a little bit of context this morning of what Christ is facing there. Mark chapter 5, we'll be starting with verse 21 in just a moment. Well, I know that everybody, it's very obvious, everybody has been mindful of the hurricanes, hurricanes that have uh, come the last couple of days and just how that has drastically put some question marks in our life. And, you know, when we have chaos in our lives, whether it's coming from nature that we cannot control, whether it's coming from even physical things in our lives or other things in our lives, it's amazing how there's a fear, there's kind of an anxiety that comes upon us from the known and the unknown. I think one of the hardest parts of like a hurricane is that they know that it's coming. Now, again, it's been adjusted a couple times. In fact, people thought it was going to come this way and go up the east coast of Florida. Now it's going to be on the west coast of Florida. And so, yes, there's been some adjustments. But for the most part, what have we known for at least a week that it's coming? And it's one of those things that's really difficult because, in a way, you can kind of prepare because you know something's coming. And yet there's an unknown factor. Okay, is it going to hit right here? And what kind of destruction will come? That's kind of the setting of today's story. Two different people. Now, we're talking about seven lives, but this is a story that Mark actually tells the story of two different people because they come to Christ at the same time. They have two different needs. The, the people are as different as night and day, and yet they have one thing that is very common in their life, and that's desperation. One of the things that we notice in Texas and one of the things that we see now in Florida and we will see in the days to come, isn't it amazing that it really does sometimes bring out the worst of people, but very much it can bring out kind of the best of people? We've seen people truly become kind of this brotherly love and this, you know, working together for a common good. Well, that's what happens in times of desperation, guys. Yeah, sometimes it can bring out evil, and there are going to be people that will do something that is just the unthinkable. But for the most part, we really see that sometimes in desperation, that titles are gone. Economic standing is gone. Background is gone. Race is gone. Religion is gone. All those kind of things are gone. And all of a sudden, that common denominator of, of just desperation brings you together. And that's what we find in these two people today. Again, they're as different as night and day. One very much is part of a religious, if you want to say uh, very religious and very kind of uh, uh, people are gathering around him. And yet we find uh, that she's pretty much an outcast. Not because of her sin, but because of her sickness. One of the things for us to really understand in this is kind of think Hebraically, think like a Jewish person. Rightly or wrongly, they almost always connected sickness with sin. Now, in one way, I say rightly because really sickness is, if we just kind of look back, sickness is a result of sin. Now, let me clarify. Big S sin. 
There would not have been sickness in the garden with Adam and Eve. There would have been perfection. It was their falling. And when the fall came and their rebellion against God came, that's when sickness came. Their bodies began to age. Things that happened to us now in life with sickness now came upon the world. And it's been a part of the world ever since. And it will only go away in the day that we're in glory. Remember what Revelation 21 says? No more sickness, no more pain. But now we're in a time of sickness. And can we say that it's always drawn back to sin? Yes, in kind of this big theoretical, theological way, yes. Does that mean that everybody has cancer, that the cancer came or the sickness came or whatever it is that because of their sin personally and then God said, okay, this is... No, please don't draw that conclusion. And yet they did draw that conclusion. The lady that we see here in this story, this real account, 12 years that she's had a sickness. She's been to every doctor. She's been to every available source of help. Uh, We'll talk later on about some of the strange things that they had even in Jewish writings, the Talmud, that they would try to do. Taking an ostrich egg, you wrap it up, you sprinkle some of this. I mean, they had some crazy stuff that you do. Take the corn out of donkey dung and carry that with you. I mean, truly, that's what it says in the Talmud. It says, okay, if you haven't got rid of your sickness, do this. And you're going, okay, no, that's making me sick now that I would even think about doing this, okay? And, and isn't it amazing, though, that when we get desperate, do you look for a process or do you look for a person? Let's be honest. Don't we like sometimes look for a process? Hey, I've heard if you do this, this, and this, you know, that this will help your cold. And, and sometimes there's nothing evil about a process. And yet what we see, somebody who's been sick for 12 years, she has tried every process there is. Today she gets to come to see a person. Okay. Now we have another character. He, he is, uh, his did not build up over 12 years. Uh, we see a man coming. He is kind of religiously aligned. He was a worker in the synagogue, uh, what's called a ruler in the synagogue. That could be everything from a lay person, like an elder, lay person, teacher, all the way up to a pastor, what we would call a pastor. Somewhere in there, we know that he's kind of religiously connected to the synagogue, and he's part of spiritual life for a lot of people. So we see this in his life. And yet his has not built up over 12 years But his comes suddenly. His daughter, who happens to be 12 years old, and I could go long about the why do we have 12 uh, there. The numerology in the Bible is really kind of amazing, and there's a lot there. 12-year-old, his daughter's dying. He has left the side of his dying daughter to come to Jesus because he's heard about Jesus. And he probably hasn't heard a lot of favorable things about Jesus because the talk in the synagogue about Jesus wasn't, you know, the Pharisees aren't really, Jesus isn't like high on their list of, you know, people that you want to meet, people that you really like and want to follow. Two different people, drastically different lives. One building up over 12 years, trying every solution possible, not finding hope. Another one, thrust into it. We don't know if she's been sick. The little daughter's been sick for a day, a week, or what. But it's enough to where daddies, daddies, you're leaving the side of your dying daughter. You're desperate. There's a measure of desperation. You're not sending the friend. You're not sending a brother. You're not sending you know, somebody else. 
You're going yourself to, to Christ. But to leave your daughter? You're desperate. What I want you to see is, folks, as different as these people are, they share, the common denominator is that they're desperate people. And when we see their actions, we're going to find that they are very much desperate in the things that they do. And you and I, for the most part, we don't invite desperation into our lives. I told somebody this morning, I said, don't we avoid desperation like the plague? It's like, you know, desperation's coming here. We're going, where's the exit sign? Where do we go out here? I'll make an exit, you know, because we don't want desperation in our lives. But I challenge you this morning to look at desperation in a different light. I'm not going to say that we're just going to open up our arms and say, come on, desperation. But in my own desperate times in my life, I've seen the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of a father in heaven and the beauty of the hope of Christ, unlike other times when you allow the chaos of the world and the distractions of the world and the fluff of the world to kind of come in. Part of this transformed mind, this Romans 12, 2 that we've been talking about, to think differently as a follower of Christ, one of it is not that we all of a sudden just begin to welcome desperation, but we don't see it as an enemy. We actually see that maybe it is going to be a friend. That it actually will teach us some things that we would not have learned in the midst of normal life. I try to say that every time I go to the hospital, especially if people are kind of in a position where, they're going to be there two or three or four days. It's not just a cold, but they're in there. And, you know, it's kind of just knocked them off their feet. I go, okay, I'm excited about what God may teach you during this time that you would not have known if you were just going to work this week. Because I promise you, when you're looking at the ceiling of a hospital bed and you're hooked up to machines and, and they've said, okay, we're doing all that we can and it, it looks good, but, you know, I don't know. There's a... Your ears are wide open to hear from God. Amen? And he teaches you something in the midst of that time that is very, very, you know, desperate that perhaps you would not have heard just in the chaos of being a mother of three or a husband of one month. I was going to say three. (laughs) Husband of one (laughs) with three children. (laughs) That's a whole nother sermon uh, for a whole nother day. Okay, we'll come back to that. Mark chapter 5, verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. The reputation of Jesus as a healer has gotten out even to the people who were somewhat skeptical. Is this really the Messiah? Is he just a a magician, does does trickery? And yet, when you're desperate and you've exhausted every other means, what do you think was yelling louder in in the ears of this father? I don't know about this whole Jesus thing. He claims to be the Messiah that he heard from all the Pharisees and from all the other religious folks that, that he hung out with at the synagogue. Or do you think in that moment of desperation that he heard once about some of the healings that Jesus has done? And that's what he's hearing this day. See, desperation gives you ears to hear what maybe you really wouldn't hear on a normal basis. And so he comes and he does something that Andy pointed out last week with Zacchaeus. 
He does something very humbling. He bows at the feet of Jesus. He's a religious ruler, a ruler in the synagogue. He's not used to bowing. If anything, people maybe kind of bow to him a little bit, you know, just out of respect of his position. And yet what we see here in verse 22, that he comes and he fell at his feet. Desperate situations call for desperate actions. And it boils down things that really matter. And all of a sudden, all this religious ruler, this synagogue ruler can think about is his daughter. And we can relate to that. He makes his way to Jesus through the crowd. And there's a lot of people that are around. And uh, maybe perhaps he gets kind of entree because of his position in life, his station life. And yet he loses all decorum when he gets to Jesus and he falls down there. And look what happens in verse 24. And he went with him, that is, Jesus went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now, let's go back a couple weeks when we began this series. Jesus is preaching, and are people following him? Maybe not the religious folks, but are people following Jesus? Yeah. To the point, why did Jesus first get in the boat and go across the sea where the Gadarene demoniac was? Because he was what? Tired. He said, man, I just need a little bit of R&R. Even Jesus, because he was fully God but fully man, he said, okay, I just need to get away from this pressing crowd. Well, he gets there, and the first thing is the scattering demoniacs there, and so he, he heals him, brings him back to sound mind and sound body, and now he gets back in the boat and he goes back across, and guess what's the first thing there to, to welcome him? People. And it's a throng. I mean, that's not a... Use the, how many times did you use the word throng last week? Yeah. But can you imagine how many a throng is? That's a bunch of people. See, here's, there were curious people about Jesus. There were touchers that just wanted to touch. There were people that had heard about miracles and all kinds of things. So the people were kind of coming to Jesus somewhat maybe in this sense of messiahship, but sometimes just out of the pure curiosity, who is this Jesus? I heard that he teaches unlike anybody ever te- has taught. He does miracle. He's done this, that, and the other. And so he attracts a crowd. There's a crowd around him, and this guy comes up. And whether it's from position or just because God has ordained this moment before the world began, Christ says, I will go with you. The man has faith. It may be a questionable faith. It may be a weighted faith. But he's coming. He said, look, will you come and see my daughter? Whether it's a pure faith or not, it is a desperate faith. Now, let me ask you this, guys. Does God honor desperate faith? I see a lot of people not doing anything. A couple of people shaking their head yes. Not one of us, I promise you guys, not one of us would ever come to Christ in salvation if it wasn't a desperate faith. Maybe you didn't understand the fullness of your desperation. We were lost sinners. The Bible says we were the enemies of God. And yet he made us the children of God when we came and we placed our faith in the work of Jesus Christ. It may not have felt desperate, but I promise you, theologically, it was desperate faith. And if we place it on the work of Christ, it is saving faith. This guy's desperate. 
And he comes, and we don't know if he's fully just said, okay, I really believe this is the Messiah, and that he can heal my, son, my daughter, or if he's saying, I've tried everything else, it's urgent, I heard that he's right over here, I can walk here in a couple hours, and, and I can come back. But we don't know the fullness of the situation. We see it in, in the Matthew's Gospel and the Luke's Gospel, and we get a little bit of more coloring than this. Basically, he says, Jesus, will you come? And Jesus says, yes. Verse 25. Okay, so give me your mind. He's come. He's followed in Jesus' feet. He's desperate. She's dying. My daughter is dying. Time is of the essence. Let's go. In fact, Jesus, do you jog? Do, do you run? And so they start going back. He gets about maybe this far. Is it just he and this guy, or is there still a crowd? Still a crowd. And look what happens in the midst. He's heading the right direction. He's going. This, can you imagine the relief that this father feels? Still unsure, still unknowing. And yet, hey, at least there's hope. And when there's hope, at least there's something we can kind of start to bank upon. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. We don't know exactly what it was, but she has, uh, this has made her ceremonially unclean. To the Jewish people, she would not have been able to go to church. She would not have been allowed to touch other people, and she would not have been allowed to be touched. Twelve years, she's been kind of in isolation. That maybe you could get close to her, but you would not have touched her. She, she's really lacked, more than likely, human touch for twelve years. Verse 26. And who had suffered much under many physicians. See, she had been to every doctor. When we see this same story in Luke, Luke was a doctor. He makes it very clear no doctors could heal her. So it wasn't just, you know, Mark's opinion here as a non-doctor. Luke, the doctor, in his account, says the same thing. She cannot be healed. And when it says that she had uh, suffered much under many doctors, we're talking medieval times, okay? We're, We're talking about ancient times. And while they did have some series of of kind of a known medicine, there was a lot of experimentation, guys. I mean, just think about 2,000 years ago. And Dr. A has not been able to heal, or Dr. B hasn't, and you're Dr. C. For the most part, I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings, but for the most part, do doctors kind of think highly of themselves? Do they want to solve... Does Dr. Steve want to solve what Dr. A and Dr. B did not solve? Yeah. There, there's kind of this pride sometimes that comes. And again, I love doctors. I love nurses. You know, I mean, we, we need those. But, you know, doctors sometimes, they do have kind of this arrogance like, oh, 20 doctors haven't helped you? Sit down. I can help you. And there's just, you know, and you kind of want that doctor to be like that. Well, what it means here that she had suffered much under the doctors. How many doctors has she been? 20, 30? And maybe they started doing some really strange things, even putting her in a worse position. I mean, remember that there's times, guys, that they used to do lobotomies. <laughs> there used to be a lot of ancient things that they did. I mean, how many of you, if you went into the hospital now with a blood issue and the doctor said, you know, I heard that a couple thousand years ago that leeches really can draw out the, the poison. And you said, well, hey, I'm game for that. Not me. <laughs> don't you have an equipment that you plug in that you can monitor there is no telling there's no telling what she'd been through 
But the Bible says, not me, the Bible said she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no matter, uh, no better, but had rather grown worse. Folks, it, it, on a scale of 1 to 10 desperation, she's a 10. She's unclean. If you go back to Leviticus chapter uh, 13, verse 25 through 27, it would say the rules of what you did if you had this disease and very much you can't go to synagogue, you can't do this, can't touch, can't be touched. I mean, all this, she's in isolation. And yet, look at her faith. And you tell me, as I read this, is this a desperate faith? Verse 28, For she said, even If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Is that faith? Is it a desperate faith? Yeah. Does God honor desperate faith? Yeah, when it's centered on him. Not craziness, not just going out there, not any kind of faith, but faith centered on him, on Christ, even if it's desperate faith. I mean, think about in the middle of war, what they used to call, you know, this, you know, shotgun faith, that, you know, bullets are flying over your head and you cry out and say, Jesus, save me. That's desperate faith. But it could be saving faith as long as you're putting your attention and your focus on Christ. It may not be mature faith. It may not be religious faith and really calculated faith. It may only be desperate faith. But if you put it on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that's what she's done here. It's a desperate faith. I don't know about you, that encourages me, guys. Because as much as I would want a scholarly faith, as much as I want to say, you know, this experiential faith, if you haven't had it yet, guys, there will be a time in your life that all you have All you have is desperate faith. And the creator God who made all things, I believe will hear you in the fullness of what Jesus did. There's a throng of people around him. I mean, look what what it says here. Verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood, she, she reaches out, she touches the hem of the garment there, and says, and immediately the flow of the blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. That she felt in her body that she was healed. Her faith made her do something that was very uncharacteristic. There's a throng of people. Do you think she had to touch somebody? Kind of break a couple of Levitical logs there in order to come to Jesus? But when you're desperate, the wall and a chance to survive. Verse 30, And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? I I love the disciples until after Pentecost. I mean, only when the Holy Spirit comes. Because, of, you know, even the three years that they're with Jesus, they just do not get it. Everything, I mean, Jesus does it. It's not like it's a big mystery. But to them, whew, right over the top of their head. And look, they, they miss this. They miss this. Verse 31. And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you? And yet you say, Who touched me? Actually, Jesus, there's probably about 30 people touching you right now. If you have more than one child and you've traveled to grandma's and it takes over three hours to get to grandma's, 
and you've seen your children in the back, he's touching me. Jesus says, somebody touch me. And the disciples, right over their head, how, how, why do you say somebody's touching you? Because, Jesus, there's actually a lot of people touching you. There's actually a whole bunch of people. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, what had happened to her? She'd been healed. And yet, look at her status. Came in fear and trembling. Why do you think she came in fear and trembling? Yeah. She comes in fear and trembling. Especially, you know, she thinks she's going to kind of do it anonymously. She's just going to come there and touch the hem of the garment. She's going to be healed. She's got to be excited that healing has come. Twelve years. And now she's healed. You've got to be excited. And yet she's thinking, okay, there's so many people. I can just kind of back off and nobody will ever know. And Jesus stops who touched me. And the insinuation there is that he's looked. And this is one of the many times that the scripture, it doesn't specifically say, but can you imagine your eyes meeting the eyes of Jesus? I mean, when he walked. I mean, there's certain times. Sometimes it was the Pharisees, and it says, and Jesus looked at him. Can you imagine? And then there's other times, when, uh, the woman caught in adultery. There's different times that sinners came to Jesus, and, and Jesus looked at them. And Jesus looks at her, and she is fear and trembling. And she falls down before him and told him the whole truth. Desperate plans are not always logical. They're daring. Because by nature, they're desperate. But now the woman faces the reality that while she may be healed, there may be a lot of people there in their religious mind that said, okay, you broke the rules. You're healed, but you didn't do it by the law. Verse 34. This is my Savior. This is my Savior. And he said to her, Daughter, only time in all the Bible that Jesus calls a person by this name. Now, he mentions daughter, but this is the only time he ever calls by name. Personified is a name. Only time in the whole gospel. Woman has not been touched for 12 years. She is not touched. She is as, as kind of a wall around her as much as you can imagine. And he calls out and he says, daughter. She's fear and trembling. Do you think some of the fear and the trembling went away by his first words? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Still don't know her name, but if I had a choice between Bobby and son, and Jesus is looking at me in the eye, and he says, Bobby, that's great. But if he says, son, somehow that's better. We still don't know her name. I think daughter is going to be sufficient. Especially if you have not been touched for 12 years. Well, all the time, this guy's looking at his Rolex going, come on, Jesus. And right when they finish, and they end this conversation, 
somebody from the family comes up. And look at verse 35. And while he was still speaking, that is, Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone that said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Desperate faith, desperate times, would you say that there's also the possibility of desperate anger? I mean, seriously? Have you ever went up and said something calmly to a person who's desperate and had your head head bit off? Husbands, wives, have you ever (laughs) tried to calm the situation by introducing some logic or some this and the other? And your spouse is desperate. And your spouse just, I mean, chomps the head. Don't you tell me to calm down. (laughs) Don't you tell me not to worry. I have plenty to worry about. It happens. You get desperate. You're fragile. Your feelings are on edge. Perhaps you haven't slept Regularly, perhaps, you know, the, every, every cycle in your life, every normalcy in your life is off because you're in a desperate situation. And they come, and, and what I would expect maybe out of this dad is, look, I was here first. And, and I'm not joking about it. I mean, isn't there a sense of I was here first and you promised me that you were going to come to my house? And I don't know that 10 minutes would have made a difference, but Jesus... He doesn't pull rank and position. But I would probably at least pull that I was here first. As quickly as Jesus responded to woman's fear, you can only imagine this father's, this daddy's fear that comes him. Jesus addresses it. Look at verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not what? Do not fear, only believe. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. He goes in. The mourners have already begun to mourn. If you have never seen ancient Middle Eastern mourning, it is not soft. It is not quiet. It is dramatic. And these people, I mean, there would have been wailing. There would have been true wailing going on. And so there's a lot of chaos And a lot of that is authentic. They are authentically wailing because of the loss of this daughter. She is dead. He takes Peter, James, and John. He goes inside, verse 39. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And there's people in the room, and more than likely that's family members, because at that point... More than likely, the closest to the family, I mean, wouldn't that be the situation where you are? It's not just the old high school buddy, and it's not just somebody. That at that time, if it was crisis, more than likely these are the most immediate family members that are there, and they're in there. And what do they do when Jesus says, why are you crying? What does it say? Verse 40. In the Greek it says, they laughed at his face. They laughed to his face. This wasn't like... He's not a doctor. He shouldn't say things like that. They literally laugh to the face of Jesus. Verse 41. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, come by. 
which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Two different stories, two incredibly different people, different as night and day. And yet, when desperation came into their life, one that had built up over 12 years, one that was much more immediate, much more of just the moment and an urgency, and yet, at the feet of Christ, guys, it is level ground. It is level ground. And I say that to give you hope today. Don't think that, that if Billy Graham and you were at the feet of Jesus, that somehow Jesus would say, come on now, Ricky. Ricky Fitzpatrick, Billy Graham, come on. A guy who's connected, a woman who's totally disconnected. A, a guy who has friends and family mourning with him. He's got plenty uh, to, to try to bring him compassion. A lady who is totally isolated in her misery and her loneliness. And yet at the foot of Christ, man, there's level ground. That gives me hope, guys. That gives me hope. To the person who's been going to church all their life, to the person you walked in this morning, it's the first time in church. You come to a place of desperation. You turn your eyes into Christ. Level ground, guys. But I don't know all those books of the Bible, and I don't have all this religious knowledge that this synagogue ruler would have. I'm just this person over here, and I just know that I'm desperate and I need Christ. Level crown. Praise God. Amen. This is our hope, guys. This is the hope of the gospel. That there's not a line. Have you ever gone to get jewelry at Christmas? And they said, Pull a tag. You pull a tag. You look down, 134. You look up thinking, okay, surely they're on 129 or 130. You look up and they're on 27. (laughs) Feet of Jesus to desperate people, not just desperate in your circumstances, but you turn your knowledge, you turn your, your eyes, you turn your heart, you turn your life into the hope of Christ and who he is, the son of the very living God, the savior of the world, in that simplicity of faith, you don't have it all figured out, you don't have a theology degree, but you come and you just say, God, I need you. Level crown. Praise God. Praise God. Are you desperate this morning? Amen. I pray that we are. I, you know, this whole series is about transformed thinking. Romans 12, 1. Are you, 12, 1 and 2. Are you going to start thinking differently by this transformed mind because of the Holy Spirit, transformed because now we're in Christ, and we just think differently? doesn't mean that all of a sudden our problems are going to go away. The Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. What it means is that we start to deal with it a little bit different. It doesn't even mean that we don't have desperation. What it means is that we look at desperation instead of something to be scolded and, and scorned and run away from, that when it comes to our lives, we're going, okay, God, you are sovereign God. If you've allowed this, there's purpose for it. I may not like it, but you can use this for your glory, and you can use this to draw me close. That's transformed thinking. I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and go, okay, God, just bring it to me, desperation, desperate times. I'm not going to invite it in, but I hope that when it does barge in, that I can come back and have a gospel approach to it. That I can know that at the feet of Christ is level ground. Two people as different as night and day 
joined together in their desperation, but finding the commonality that Christ is the answer. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you. Father, I, I pray that this morning that, uh, that we have made much of you as the Word makes much of you, that, Father, today that we can look and we can see that you have sent your Son to desperate people that were in desperate need, and that, Father, today that we would know that there is no desperation, Father, that is too great, that, Father, that Christ in his finished work cannot break through. Father, I pray for those that are sitting right here with us this morning and they've had to leave their homes in South Georgia and Florida, Father. And they're here today and they're being kind. And yet I can only imagine that their mind would say, well, I have a home when I get home. Father, in that sense of chaos, the unknown, will you give them the peace and the freedom from fear that you gave to these two? Father, for us that are dealing with sin in our lives, and Father, we we see the tragedy of that sin and the weight of that sin, or maybe it's sickness in our lives, and maybe it hasn't been 12 years, but it's been a long time, and and the doctors have not been able to give us conclusive answers, and and yet, Father, we find this desperation of the unknown. Father, Will you give us the hope of Christ? Not the hope of, hey, here's how it's all going to work out. Just the hope of Christ. For broken families, for broken marriages, for broken lives. For those that can so identify this woman that would say, hey, maybe I've touched somebody in the last 12 years, but I am as lonely as that woman. I feel like I'm totally just alone. Father, let them know that at the feet of Christ, there's a level ground. And as wonderful as Billy Graham is, Father, he's not number one in line and we're number 747. Father, that we are there at the feet of Christ and that, Father, that you come and you call us son and you call us daughter. And, Father, that's our proclamation this morning. We love you and we thank you. We thank you that you are our hope in the moments of desperation in this life of chaos. We pray all this in the blessed hope of the one who made it possible, Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.